This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked Hannah Kulin, a product designer, what's the biggest challenge she's faced with designing for Facebook? And here's what she said. What we're working on is such an enormous and diverse range of problems. And Facebook isn't just like one product or one type of design problem. So we're working for a number of types of industries from advertising, news and media and local businesses to video and messaging. And designing at that scale and with those type of industries is presenting unique challenges. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Prairie View A&M University is looking for an adjunct assistant professor for their art department. Facebook is looking for a research program manager as well as a UX researcher. Society of Grownups is looking for a product designer in Boston, and Mapbox is looking for a map designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes to functionality as well as customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. We've been using Hover pretty much since Revision Path started, and they make it really easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 37 patrons, but we dropped down a little bit to $262 a month. Now that drop kind of usually happens around the beginning of the month, you know, people get new cards and things like that, so that number tends to fluctuate a bit. But again, I want to thank everybody that has helped pledge their support and appreciation for the show. It really does help out a lot. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Provision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or you've gotten any kind of value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to some really great perks like early access to future episodes, free revision path goodies, and so much more. So just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month, and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. 
Now let's go on to this week's interview. So this month we're continuing our theme of legacies and we're talking to one of the first people that I had the pleasure of interviewing for Revision Path way back in April of 2013, illustrator and art director Sanango Akpem. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Sanango Akbem. I'm a Nigerian-American illustrator and art director. I live in New York City. I uh, have been here for about six years now, and I currently work at an agency called Constructive, and I'm a designer there, and we focus very heavily on design for the social good, work on uh, climate change, as well as you know education and, and other things which have a positive impact on, on society. And uh, yeah, outside of that, I, I do a lot of illustration and a lot of side projects, uh, which um, you know I post and talk about regularly. So that's me. I know there's a, a seems to be a trend now. I don't want to really, I guess, call it a trend, but there are a lot of agencies and people that I've talked to that are doing work along this kind of social good area. What made you decide to want to get into that with some of the past work that you've done? So it was an interesting transition for me. I think the last time that we spoke. I was working in publishing, in educational publishing, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I come from my parents. Uh, my mother was a missionary. Uh, my father is a pastor, and they were very active, you know, philanthropists, if you will, in Nigeria, and uh, you know, worked at hospitals and and so on. So, me and my sisters grew up being very conscious of both uh, the people who didn't have as much as we did, and then also specific actions that people could take to like make the world better, which is a pretty broad term, but you know, working in publishing was all right, but it, the publishing industry is just kind of fracturing at the moment. I wanted to do something which had some more tangible effects on the world. So, you know, getting in touch with Constructive and uh, when I started working there, you know, some of the first things that we did were work with universities who had climate change uh, research laboratories. You know, so you're producing infographics and other work which directly shows what we're doing to our planet. You know, and then we also did stuff for you know educational institutions. So you start to see curriculum that's been designed to you know to help those who might be less fortunate, and, and so on. So I guess focusing more on the tangible effects of what design can do, rather than this very airy or changing the world rhetoric, which we hear a lot these days. What's a typical day like for you at Constructor? What kind of projects are you all working on? I know you said something with climate change, right? Yep. So we work with. Uh, you know, a lot of organizations which are very heavily research-based. It could either be research that, uh, you know, scientists are commissioning and doing, or it could be, you know, white papers. Although the term thought leadership gets thrown out there a lot, it does have an effect in, you know, specific sectors that depend quite heavily on, you know, on, on publishing as a strategy. So a typical day is, you know, coming in, you do the regular, you know, get the coffee and check the email and so on. And then, you know, I'll probably open up Sketch, start to work uh, either on UX documents or on uh, design stuff. We'll perhaps have a meeting or two uh, to go over, you know, client specs and maybe internal projects. And then in the afternoons, it's usually right back to the computer to, to continue designing, working on logos and so on. So, you know, one specific thing I'm working on right now is uh, a project where, their main user and consumer base is not even in the U.S., it's in, uh, in Africa. And so as I'm working on my sketch documents and I'm starting to comp up some of these layouts, you know, I'm pulling in images from their markets, images that their you know, salespeople or whatever have taken, and it's of African men and women. And you know, I can see myself in these pictures. And so uh, you know, in that way, it's quite fun to work on those things because 
you know, as a designer, you want to do things which reflect who you are. So that's basically what a typical day looks like. And aside from that, you know, with the the work that you're doing there, I know there are some other projects that you work on. When we first talked to you back in, was it April of 2013, you were working on a personal project called Pixel Fable. Are you still working with that? Yes. Pixel Fable is, you know, one of those long running things where it ebbs and flows. Uh, It definitely was flowing a lot more the last time we talked. And I've taken a step back to do a few other things. But, you know, originally Pixel Fable was mostly focused on African children's stories, interactive stories. And I ended up doing an iPad app, which ran for about a year. And that was, you know, one story every month, an illustrated story. So ended up publishing 12. And, you know, over time, I think as an adult, I am less interested in reading and developing children's stories. And so what I've started to do with Pixel Fable is work on more adult-focused stories, still interactive stories, but in a way, I think that they can be deeper. They can have more kind of, you know, connections and multimedia and stuff like that that is accessible for grown-ups uh, rather than kids. So I've got a few projects in the works. One of them I, you know, have finished doing all the content development for, and uh, I can't really tell you anything more about it yet, but suffice it to say, it's going to be coming out in the next few months and is some sort of fiction uh, that you're going to have to wait to find out what it is. So okay. I'm working on it. I remember it might have been earlier this year or maybe late last year, there was another kind of conceptual project that you did. Polo Halo, I believe is what it is. That's right. So as you well know, I am very heavily into science fiction and have been my whole life. You know, I, like I was just saying earlier, I've just finished watching two episodes of the new Voltron and, you know, seeing all of the exploding spaceships and the planets and all of this, it just, man, I love that stuff so much. So what I wanted to do was to take what I love about science fiction, you know, the, the devices and, you know, the strange people and situations and so on, and create almost like a little parody, an ironic little website, which is advertising Holo Halo. And what Holo Halo is, is this uh, projection wearable device that reads your mood either through biorhythms or whatever, or, you know, some kind of mental connection, who knows, and then will project this halo around your head. And uh, so I went through and I actually animated the, the halos themselves. I just used SVG, some CSS3 animation, you know, and a little bit of to other JavaScript stuff here and there. But all of the people on the Holo Halo site are uh, Africans or Middle Easterners, uh, people who are traditionally not represented at all in the science fiction that we see on the big screen. You know, one of the, the questions that somebody posted on Twitter was like, how many movies can you name, science fiction movies can you name that had a black lead? And immediately it stumps everyone. And, you know, you come up with a few, well, there's Will Smith, it was Independence Day and so on. But if you really think about it, it's very, very astonishingly rare. So Holo Halo was an attempt to, you know, kind of counteract that a little bit. I think Will Smith is in all of them. Now that I think about it, there's like, (laughs) no, seriously, there was, was, uh, God, you mentioned Independence Day. There was Hancock, which I guess is kind of science fiction-y. There was the robot one. What was it called? iRobot or I Am Robot or something like that. Yep. iRobot. Awesome. iRobot. That's right. There was After Earth. Uh-huh. 
I don't know why we don't look at Will Smith more as like a black science fiction star, considering he's in most of these movies. Oh, he definitely is. He definitely is. He did uh, I Am Legend as well, which was... I Am Legend, that's the yeah, one I was thinking that of. That yeah. was huge. So, you know, there's this huge dearth of, of black, of African men and women who are seen as the focus of science fiction. I think one thing that... I didn't even see the movie because people talked about it in this way, but they said, uh, what was that one about the guy who writes letters and he's a in the future Joaquin Phoenix or whatever but there was no brown people at all in the movie and it's like how can you have a future where there are no brown people so oh, is it uh, Cloud Atlas is that it whoa well don't get me started on Cloud Atlas I love <laughs> um, I thought it was an amazing movie but a lot of people hated it no it was called like her or something you know he falls in love with his phone oh yeah uh, yeah yeah that's right yeah her yeah so you know making pictures of an old black man with one of these halos and the little device around his neck. Like, that's powerful. That's my dad. That's my uncle. That's my grandfather. They have a role to play in our science fiction future. So, Is that how you first kind of got involved with design is through science fiction and learning about that stuff? How did I get involved in design first? Well, I went to art school and I took one of those, you know, you have to take a coding class to graduate type of thing. It was with Dreamweaver I don't know. What did they use in 2001? Dreamweaver 2? <laughs> I have no idea. But, no idea. Probably Home Site or something oh like man. that. Oh, Yeah, it was, it was... Go Live. I think it might have been Go Live. I think it well, might have been Adobe Go there Live. There you go. So We're both dating ourselves. Here, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> but, you know, I was, a, I was a trained printmaker. I did uh, digital lithography. So I worked a lot on the computer to produce art. But it was fine art. It was printing, you know, with litho plates and photolithography. And I never really saw myself as a, a graphic designer. I took some graphic design classes, which went terribly. So it was only then when I was in Japan and I needed a website. And I went back to what I had learned in that one class and went online, you know, started reading the little Zeldman article, this and that, and standards. And that then turned into a freelance career, which eventually turned into a, a full-time design career. Which uh, design school did you end up going to? I didn't. I mean, art oh, you didn't. Was, oh. Uh, I went to the University of Michigan uh, School of Art and Design, but I was in the art program. So everything that I know about coding and about interactive design is self-taught. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, right around that time, I know that's pretty much all that we had, really, yeah. is, is learning from reverse engineering websites and and trying to figure out what the code was behind it. That's, I tell designers now it's such a great time to start getting into coding and things like that because you have so many other resources that can really guide you every step of the way. You know, With us, it was like just a lot of trial and error. That's right. That's all it was. <laughs> More error than anything else, but that's the <laughs> point of it, I guess. So, yeah, it's been a little bit of a, you know, a roundabout route, but uh, I feel like when um, you know, I got to New York, and then that was my first full-time job as a designer at a Cambridge University Press. And that was like, I've made it, you know. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, as they say. So so what were kind of the early moments of your career? Because you mentioned at the top of the show that you've been here in the U.S. now for about six years. But what were kind of those that early start once you left school? When I left Michigan, I bounced around for about a year. I lived in Chicago with my sister. And, you know, was doing telemarketing it was terrible. So this is it was the little mini recession. The uh -huh. Iraq war was starting up and it was just a, a pretty bad time to be 
art graduate and a black man in, in America. So mm -hmm. I moved to Japan and I didn't actually do anything creative when I was there. I taught for about four and a half or five years. So it was only while I was there that I started kind of freelancing and, you know, trying my hand at, uh, at design, building websites and doing posters for people and how we all start out really. How was it in Japan? You say you really just kind of taught over there, but I know that so much of, of technology is either influenced by or is directly impacted by Japan. You know, this is a really interesting assumption. And in many ways, it is true. You know, the, the train system is second to none. I have never been on a train system which is as efficient and, you know, well-managed than one of those, the train systems in Japan. When I first got there, I remember getting one of those little clamshell phones from, uh, what was it, Vodafone at the time. And it had a screen on the front and, of course, on the inside. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is, and they were both color screens, little LCD ones. I was just amazed. Like, how can this, this is, this is the future, you know? But in other ways, Japan is a very, very, very traditional society that doesn't rely on technology at all. Very often when you have to do paperwork, uh, things are done in triplicate you know, going to the ward office, so kind of like your, your county or your, um, you know, city neighborhood offices to do paperwork and pay your taxes and so on is incredibly paper oriented. There's no tech there at all. So on one hand, they have pioneered some of the most amazing technology in the world. And then on the other hand, as a society, like an organized group of humans, they rely on paper and, and so on quite a bit, which is interesting. What did you sort of pick up design-wise while you were there? We've all seen these, you know, this is like amazing Japanese design posts online. And every year it seems like there's another kind of award winner that comes out of Japan. And their packaging and their attention to small details and balance within the object itself is really second to none. From what I know about Japanese culture and Japanese society, that is almost an after effect of the way that they organize themselves as a society. So it's not like they've deliberately gone out and decided to make some of the best packaging design in the world or something like that. It comes from somewhere else. So, you know, in Japan, there's this idea that the word is honno and then there's tatemae. So honno hon is like, you know, the origin or the, you know, the, the center or whatever. So that's your true self. And then there's tatemaya, so maya is like front, and that's the face that you show people. And you know, Japanese society is very cautious and very clear to always make sure that you show a face to your, your group. And to make sure that there's balance within the group. The group comes first, and we have to make sure that those in the group are taken care of, and so on. So you can then see the connection in the way that design gets made in that all of the elements on the package or all the elements on the site or whatever need to be in harmony with each other. So it's almost like an after effect of the way that they see themselves as Japanese, which, you know, was something that I learned like when I got there. You know, you talk a lot about culture in design and certainly what you just described is, is really almost like the, the balance and the harmony of those two things because of the way the culture and society is that affects how, you know, they are with design. Do you really kind of see that here in the States as well? Do you think that we have a similar type of, I wouldn't say similar culture to Japan, but do we have our, does our culture 
influence our design in a similar fashion? Hmm. That is a really great question. I honestly haven't thought about it too much. I think that having been here and working as a designer, the things that I notice about American society are, I think, the, the ease with which you know, both good and bad ideas are discarded. And speaking mostly from a, a design standpoint, the, you know, the website redesign as almost as ritual that's happening now with a lot of regularity. New websites, especially for established businesses, aren't getting created anymore. It's always a redesign. The, the content strategy, how do we, we move on to this platform? How do we like monetize Pokemon? It's all of these <laughs> ideas that people have of reinvention and renewal. The second chance in American society, which happens a lot in design as well. And so I think that from what I see of American society and how it influences our design culture, there's a lot of that. But then there's in American society, a lot of fear. There's a lot of anger. American society can be very vicious, very physically vicious and emotionally vicious. And you see that also reflected in the way that we speak about design. You know, there was something again on Twitter just yesterday, some, you know, quote unquote critic had torn up somebody's work without any understanding of the context of it. And it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But that's the way American society is. So it wasn't Eli Schiff, was it? it wasn't <laughs> I'm not saying any names. <laughs> OK, no, I know that that guy gets a bad rap. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of uh, of design news. And whenever some whenever he posts something, whether it's about, you know, skeomorphism or about the Instagram logo or something. There's this very negative reaction from the community that he even said anything in the first place. And I I don't know if that's because of his position as a self-described design critic or because of the reverence that we tend to have for design from certain brands. Mm. It's a good question. I mean, I think uh, there's somebody that I follow on Twitter, uh, Chappelle Ellison, who is uh, uh, you know, a writer and a, a critic, I believe. And she often makes the point that you know, being a design critic is a very, very special skill. And it's not, you need to know what you're doing. You need to be able to look critically and analytically at things and you know, also have humanity because it's not always about just finding all of the cracks and the flaws. So, yeah, I would say more of that, please, <laughs> from from our design society and less of the what is it? I don't like it. Why do you think we're so aggressive, though? I mean, when it comes down to critique and things like that, you know, there's there does seem to be this lack of of thoughtfulness and tact that goes into it. It's almost like we have to, you know, we're like getting down to the white meat almost when it comes to, to critique. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this type of interactive design that we do is so new. There's no precedent for any of this. You think about the way that arts and crafts and and art has been practiced for thousands of years, commercial kind of presentation screen design in the way that we're doing it now is we still haven't really come to terms with what it means and how it works and how it doesn't work. And I think that Because of that, there are a lot of very, very sensitive people. There are a lot of mediocre people who have fallen into this and are afraid for their position. And there are a lot of whip smart people who kind of see the cracks and see the flaws, but can be shouted down sometimes when when they point these things out. So I think it's just so new. And also, you know, Western society is, there's an ugliness to it that 
I didn't see when I was in Japan. You know, Nigeria has its own special sort of ugliness along with beauty, but there's definitely something sad and ugly and rotten in the way that uh, Western society is and how they treat creative people and, and so on. So I think that plays into it a lot. What's kind of the design scene like for you in, in New York City? I think when I first got here, I was trying to do stuff and go to this AIG this and, you know, art directors club that. And I've pulled back on a lot of that now just, you know, because I've got my own side projects and so on. But working with my coworkers at Constructive, you know, on our Slack channels, of course, we talk a lot about, you know, have you seen this or that? And being able to collaborate with them is, of course, really, really powerful. Uh, a lot more gets done when you have three or four heads versus one. So I don't really know too much about the way that the design scene is here anymore. I would say that my experience when I first came, you know, with the ADC specifically was not too great. It was extremely clicky and very dismissive of, of interactive work um, as a thing, you know, very much focused on, on print and you know, an idea uh, as opposed to interaction and code. So you, there's all sorts. I think the Twitter, the New York design Twitter is probably where it's at for me. So it's a little bit less time intensive. Okay. I'm really interested in knowing what it was like for you growing up in Nigeria. What was it like for you when you were a child? As many times as I try and explain this and Believe me, I have, you know, what I'm about to say, I've said a million times to people because everybody does ask. It seemed completely normal to me. And so I often have trouble relating to people who were born and grew up in, in one place or people who were born and grew up in, you know, in the U.S. specifically. You know, my mother was a Californian. Uh, she moved to Nigeria in the 60s uh, around Nigerian independence and met my dad. And of course, you know, they raised three kids in Nigeria. So uh, I'm in this biracial home and uh, with an African dad who's very, very progressive as African dads go. And we were sent to boarding school in Nigeria when we were quite young. So I think when I was six years old, I was off to boarding school. So on one hand, the area that I'm from, which is called Benue State, so it's like, you know, central Nigeria basically, is largely rural the area that our house is in is kind of in a suburb of a city called Boko. And there's just not really much there. And I, I hated it as a kid because all of my friends were off somewhere else in Nigeria. And then going to boarding school, which was run by white missionaries, was a whole other experience. So it's like this American school in smack dab in the middle of Nigeria. Mm -hmm. So I had to study you know, American history. And all sorts of other stuff because it was accredited as a U.S. school. So we lived in two worlds. Uh, one of them was very, very white, very Western, very American. And then another one was very African. And, you know, being biracial, then you're also in this third world that not a lot of people understand or can relate to. So it was a very interesting childhood. When did you move out of Nigeria? Um... So, you know, we were back and forth, like, you know, as a baby, I think I spent the first two, two and a half years in the U.S., obviously don't remember it, and then was here again for a few years in high school, and then went back, you know, for my last two years of high school. So, basically, I mean, what I tell people is I left Nigeria for good in 1997 and uh, moved to the States. But now you still kind of keep some ties there, is that right, in terms of 
kind of seeing what's going on in the area with design and things like that? Very much so. Things that it's important to note that the Nigeria that I left doesn't exist anymore. You know, the America that I left in 2001, the Michigan and Chicago that I left still does exist. Those places are still there. And, you know, American society by and large is kind of in stasis. It doesn't move that much, contrary to what we expect. But when it comes to Nigeria, the country has gone through massive, massive changes. There's still a lot of problems, but what we're seeing now is because of the rise of the internet, there are whole new business models, companies, design agencies, and so on that are popping up You know, a lot in Lagos, in Abuja, in the capital, and other places as well. And so I try and you know, both stay in touch with people who are there and follow these developments because you have a rise of a whole different way of viewing the internet through Nigerian, through West African eyes. And so it's fun to, to watch that happen. Can you give me an example of that? So Mark Issien, he started uh, Hotels.ng. And, you know, started, he wrote all the first code and he was one of, he's one of those, like this is the, the Silicon Valley dream, but he did it in Lagos. And, you know, he's a good, he's a Nigerian boy. Like he, he's Nigerian all the way down to the core. And mm-hmm. he started this website, which has cataloged and created a database of all of the hotels in Nigeria. And it's worth millions, millions, millions of dollars now. He's taken funding from overseas and is just a a very smart and capable example, you know, of how internet connectivity has radically changed the way that we view our country. The fact that you can book a hotel, you know, from one side of Nigeria on the other is a really great success story. There are many, many others, but he's the first one that pops into mind. What would you say that, I guess, designers here in the States can do to maybe help or support design efforts that are going on in Nigeria and like throughout West Africa? I think one of the things that people with the purse strings and the purchasing power can do is make sure that you're using uh, developers, coders, and then also designers and illustrators and so on who aren't in New York, who aren't in LA. There are some amazing, amazing illustrators, for example, in South Africa who deserve to be given a chance to work on more global projects that they may not right now. There's coders and developers in Nigeria who absolutely would be great for a lot of these projects where you have remote uh, development teams working on stuff. Uh, You know, there's a place in Nigeria called CC Hub, which is kind of like a, you know, a tech incubator. And they've got a lot of really great ideas coming out. And so I think the best thing that people here could do is Number one, be aware that these other people do exist. And then second, if they have the ability to pay them for work, you know, design work and development work to actually go through and contract them out and increase those connections financially as well. What would you like to see more of from the design community, like just in general? Silence. (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) I think probably more focus on the poor. Uh, the downtrodden, uh, those with less than we have. Having co- a computer at all puts you in a very, very, very elite category of people in the world. And to constantly be chasing this, oh, well, I built this new you know, social media app. Like, 
come on, really? Mm-hmm. Like th- th- that's it? Or, you know, this new photo filter, or I'm going to redesign eBay this weekend. What do you guys think? You know, these are decisions that we make, conscious decisions. It's not like we're being forced to do these things, but they're conscious decisions to prioritize what is generally you know, a white business model, the you know, Instagram model, and then also to just tinker at the edges uh, rather than focusing on something truly you know, game-changing. If you really want to spend your weekend doing a design project, go and find the, I don't know, I'm just pulling one out of the air here, the Malayan you know, Ministry of Communications website and redesign it for them. You know, just and, and put it on Behance and be like, okay, I, I did this in my free time. Those are the types of decisions that make it clear that your your mind is focused more on those in need than on trying to like have an exit round or whatever they call it these days in Silicon Valley. What would you say is probably your dream project? If you had the time and the resources, what would you want to work on? I remember you asked me this before, and I think <laughs> I said that I wanted to do the branding for the Nigerian railroad system. I got to say, that would be a dope project. Now, you know, with my experience at Constructive and, uh, you know, some of the other stuff that I've seen, I think it might not actually be a client anymore. I would love to work more on an immersive Pixel Fable story. I would love to use like Unity 3D to build a VR environment and tell a story that way. Or, you know, create something, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, what is it called? It's like Lagos Sight and Sound or something like that, where you you just go onto the website and you can listen to the the sounds of the metropolis of Lagos. So to build something like that, where you can, you know, virtually see and hear what other parts of the world look like, you know, but in a, a narrative format, I think that would be a really great project. Now, we, when we talked three years ago, I know we had a, a really good interview, a lot of things that we talked about, particularly as it relates to kind of where you were at as a designer then. How do you think you've changed as a designer in the past three years? Huh. I think that my craft has gotten better. I am making better decisions about kind of the, the core graphic design stuff, spacing, uh, the use of type. And, you know, my, my manager at Constructive and uh, the owner there have really been instrumental in helping me to see some of those things that I didn't see before, showing how, you know, header and subheader text, for example, it's such a simple thing, but if done wrong, creates this dissonance, you know, helping me to figure out when you look at an interactive design or you look at a piece of work, you're often unsure about certain spots and things will bother you but you can't articulate what they are. And so being able to articulate those things and being able to say, you know what, the spacing here is incorrect. That has a really, really kind of affirming and powerful effect on my work. So I think that that's one way that I've gotten better is being able to to see those types of graphic decisions more clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something like that. Now you do a lot of public speaking. I know you've spoken at Future of Web Design, spoken at AlterConf, number of different conferences, usually around kind of these same topics of culture and design and and things like that. One thing that I'm always trying to do with Revision Path, or at least now I'm I'm starting to do, is really kind of push the needle more towards diversity and design. So when Revision Path kind of first started, 
I really kind of wanted to, of course, showcase designers and developers. And then the scope kind of broadened a bit from there. And there were software engineers and big data people, et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't until I had a few experiences actually going to conferences and speaking at conferences that I felt like I needed to narrow the show's focus down, or really the whole platform's focus down, more towards focusing on design. Now, in many of these kinds of arenas, there's not a lot of, you know, black design voices, quite frankly, whether it's written, whether it's at conferences, etc. What do you think is kind of stopping black designers from kind of becoming those leaders and voices in the design community? Mm. This is a multifaceted problem, and it's definitely not the pipeline. As we've seen in recent news, companies and people to remain unnamed. I think people don't get asked. They don't get noticed. They don't get called on. And the people who have the power to make these decisions refuse to make them and instead fall back to the quote-unquote safe decisions, which is the same five people that talked last year. The saying that no technology director ever got fired for buying IBM, I think also that same sentiment holds true in a lot of the, the conferences and so on that I went to. There is just this inability for many conference organizers, and not all, and I've worked with some really, really great ones, but for many that I see they simply don't have the intellectual capacity, unfortunately, to be able to go out and find African-American speakers, for example, or to have half of the people on stage be women. And for somebody like you or somebody like me, I've, I've lived in this black skin for a long time, and I know exactly what it takes to make it run, and I know how to make it feel loved. And I know that the same general things are going to work with you. But if you don't live in this black skin or you don't live in that Asian skin or whatever it is, I think a lot of people just like on a conscious level are unable to process what it would mean to have those people come and speak at the conferences. Some are starting to figure it out, but there's also just, you know, there's a lack of curiosity, I think, that you find in the, the, the speaker circuit and the organization circuit that does them very wrong when it comes to the people that they put on stage. I know that I've certainly ran across some conferences where one of two things will happen. One, they'll reach out, you know, to to me or they'll reach out to someone else and they'll say, well, who should we bring on? Do you have any ideas? And, you know, we suggest a few people they should bring on and then they never actually get in touch with those people. But I guess they want to feel good to know that they've at least asked. Yeah. I've seen that happen. Yeah. What I've also seen happen is, and this, you know, depends on the conference, is that they will end up getting black voices, but the black voices will not be designers. Mm -hmm. They'll be journalists or celebrities or rappers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it won't be a black designer that's been working in the field for, you know, five years, 10 years, et cetera. You know, it'll be some rapper that's thinking about learning how to code because I don't know what the, the rationale, I guess, is behind that. I guess just general popularity. But, you know, that I feel like that degrades not just kind of the, the profession as a whole, but then you look at the optics. Like, what signal are you sending to designers in the field that are black that look like that to say that you couldn't even find someone? But we got this, like, hip-hoppity rap guy. 
and we got this journalist and we got this comedian, you know, like, I don't know if they realize what signal that sends when stuff like that occurs. Yeah. And I've seen that all the time. And when people reach out and, you know, recently I haven't been doing as much speaking as I, you know, I did before, but we'll always try and then put them in touch with somebody that I know who I think would be a good fit or we'll just straight up blind, like recommend a bunch of people to the organizers and let them take it from there. My role isn't to get everybody a speaking gig, but it's to make sure that some of those connections are happening, that Mm -hmm. the email goes out, you know, that I'm CC'd on. So there can be no doubt whatsoever that this person was introduced to you. What happens after that, I unfortunately cannot control, but you start there. Yeah. I mean, when you spend your whole life surrounded by people that look exactly like you and think almost exactly like you and, you know, come from the same types of background and so on to then open your arms a little bit wider to include people who don't is a pretty tough sell. As much as we like to say that, oh, well, you know, it's just about the design or like it's all visual. So what the color of your skin shouldn't matter and so on. I mean, these are reactionary remarks Mm -hmm. designed to to cover people rather than to address what the real issue is. So as long as their networks and their communities are largely white and the people that they talk to are largely white and the people that they work with are as well, there's just no room conceptually, I think, uh, for them to, to see us as part of that community. I like what you said about them lacking the intellectual capacity. That's a really like... I I like the way that you said that (laughs) because that's kind of what it it boils down to. I mean, certainly they'll be able to get other, you know, maybe new design voices to come and speak. But if it's a person of color or if it's a woman, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, you know, what does this what does this person bring to the table? Can this person sell tickets? Are people going to be interested in seeing who they are and what they have to say? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you something that has happened to me fairly recently Oh, well, it's happened to me, but it's also happened to other people I know that are speaking. We'll be invited to come speak at a conference. We'll do a great job at the conference, get a great turnout, etc. And then you see the like official recaps that come back yeah. and we're nowhere to be found. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a pretty common one. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. But, you know, again, so this is back to my original point. What happens in you know, the, the organizer's minds or somebody's mind, they sit down at their computer. They need to type up, what is it, maybe like a thousand words or something like that about what just happened in their life over the past two days. Immediately, the erasure is happening. So you were there, but not really. Yeah. The, the things that they need in order to be affirmed. So, you know, the, the big name, who's it? or the, the big name, what's that, whoever it may be, those are the ones that get prioritized because there's simply no room, you know, like I said, intellectually for them to include us. And, you know, you see it over and over again, and it's unfortunate, but to see it is a great first step. I'm proud of our African and African-American community, people of color, for being able to point these things out very clearly and note them because, you know, we're collecting receipts. How do you think we can get the next generation of designers kind of excited about working in this field? I mean, a lot of the things that you mentioned or that we both have mentioned, these are not new discoveries. These are things that have been happening for for decades. How do we make sure that 
the next generation wants to be excited about being a part of this industry? Well, I think I just hope that a lot of the side projects that I'm doing, for example, Holo Halo, if there is some younger designer out there somewhere who sees Holo Halo and they're like, oh, shit, this is what I can do. Now, I don't have to design, you know, Amazon's checkout page every day. Like, I can also do this type of thing. I can tell these types of stories. And I hope that in a small way, them being able to see themselves, to see a woman with the headscarf, like in a science fiction project and be like, hey, wait, that's me. And then want to do that as well. So I think the, the side projects that we produce play a huge role in it. And, you know, what you're doing, obviously, is plays a huge role in it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at a certain point, you can fight all of the battles outside of the castle and you do have to storm the gates. And I think that we're, <laughs> we're getting up to the point now where we've slayed all the dragons who are outside. We're competent and we have all of the technical and marketing skills that we need in order to, to be part of the castle team. But there's a little bit of resistance inside of the castle. And so next is to break down the gate. And that comes through very forceful action. It comes through, you know, humiliating the person on the Twitter account who thought it would be a good idea to say, you know, X, which I've seen happen a lot more recently. And, you know, companies are very rightly more cautious about how they, you know, approach the issue of diversity and who they put forward. So, yeah. What keeps you motivated with, with everything that's kind of going on right now? What are the things that inspire you? Again, looking back at what's happening in Nigeria, it was, and it still is such a basket case. And if you follow me at all on Twitter, you know, I tweet a lot of stuff about Nigeria and a lot of the jokes people probably don't get unless they're Nigerian names, which seem unfamiliar and so on. But there's kind of like this fatalistic humor that a lot of Nigerians have that makes things funny. If you watch any like Nigerian Nollywood movies or whatever, they're just so ridiculous and so great at the same time and so creative and so bad. And to see those things coming out from back home and then seeing the other things that black designers in the U.S. are producing, talking with them online, like knowing that that creativity is there and is blossoming, that's really, really powerful. I'll give you one quick example. So my sister Denanga is a professor in Chicago. And so uh, she teaches at the, um, the School of the Art Institute and uh, does classes on the Black arts movement and also on Afrofuturism. And she spoke at a conference uh, in Chicago with me. And she presented a project that one of her students had done, which was she showed the video and everything. And it was the national anthem for the future Mars colony. And basically what she had done is asked her students who were, you know, very largely African-American, you know, Chicagoans to imagine what it would be like if, you know, a bunch of black people went to Mars and like set up shop. And so you had this this woman, young woman anyway, who like composed this whole national anthem for the, the new Martians and like sang it in class. And, you know, there was like a fist raised and you're like, yes, this is us. You know, this is what we need to do. So. Seeing those types of projects is really powerful. And, uh, you know, I, I love to see other people doing that sort of thing. So, Who have been some of the mentors or people that have kind of helped you out along the way? Mm, 
I think a lot of, you know, the, the Twitter design community has been immensely helpful, you know, just kind of like the links that people post and the way that they speak about design has helped me a lot in kind of contextualizing who I am. Also, uh, my sister Denanga, again, has been a huge mentor. She isn't like a full-time graphic designer or interactive designer. She's an educator and a performer and artist. And so she approaches things from a very different perspective. But like any little brother, you know, you show your, your sibling something that you worked on and even if it's just a steaming pile of shit, they're going to be like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing. I'm so proud of you. So those types of encouragements help a lot. You know, and then, like I said before, my manager at Constructive has been hugely helpful in showing me some of the things that I didn't really know before, uh, ways of thinking and ways of speaking about design uh, that I hadn't really considered. And, you know, all it takes is just a little push in the right direction. What are you excited about at the moment? Anything in particular? Uh, I'm excited about a project that uh, Denanga and I are working on. This is another, uh, Denanga is my sister again. This is a Pixel Fable project, which is this interactive experience that is based on a very ancient Egyptian story. And it involves all sorts of mysticalness and craziness. You know, this story was written three, four, five thousand years ago. And what we're doing is taking it and reinterpreting it, you know, as much more of a West African tale. And we'll be designing full costumes, which Denanga is working on. Uh, there will be a huge interactive piece to it. And, you know, so it's this type of storytelling on the web uh, where we're taking these older bits and pieces of African history. And then as Afrofuturism is wont to do, reimagining it for the future. And so, you know, the story that we're doing, again, it happened many thousands of years ago, but we're reimagining it in the far distant future. And so what does that look like? You know, and how is African culture still reflected? Yet at the same time, perhaps the concept of Africa doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm really excited to continue working on that. And we'll be posting more about that very soon. I've always been curious if Afrofuturism is something that is really talked about or discussed in Africa <laughs> or in particular countries in Africa. Cause it feels like it's a, it's very much a Western invention. Right. So where I'm from is, uh, you know, Benue state in Nigeria, the largest tribe in Benue is the Teve tribe. And I am, I'm Teve, uh, my father's mm -hmm. Teve. And growing up, we heard lots of stories. Uh, some of those are stories that made it into Pixel Fable, but in a more general sense, Teeth people have this kind of like, you know, oral history as many African tribes do. But, you know, one thing in particular, we talk about the Mbatsav, and Mbatsav is like the witches. And they're all around us, and they are evil spirits, basically, but can transform themselves into many different forms and so on. And even though the Teeth people are you know, a Christian nation, a Christian people, and, uh, you know, are very religious in that way. Still, as Teef people, when we talk about Mbatsav, we're talking about this, like, mysticism or other energy that also does exist. And this is a, you know, it's a difficult thing, I think, for Westerners to understand, like, the, the coexistence of, you know, magic juju, if you will, with much more kind of modern, you know, technology and, and religion. And so we grew up with this sort of thing. 
when in the West we talk about Afrofuturism and it's this mix of like the past and the future and, you know, science fiction and so on. I wonder if when TV people talk about Mbatsov, we're talking about Afrofuturism, but we just didn't have that word. Again, it's difficult to explain in such a short time, but there's a way I think that Africans look at, West Africans anyway, look at science, uh, look at culture that very closely resembles Afrofuturism. Where do you see yourself in like the next, let's say, five years or so? Mm. What do you think you working on? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I will, of course, still be a designer, uh, still be an illustrator. And in five years, I think I'll probably be working on more, you know, immersive stories, uh, probably doing stuff with, you know, like uh, I'm blanking on the name of the, the device. Facebook bought it. Um, it's like the 3D. Oh, the Oculus. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know, and there's other ones as well. I think Samsung has their own Samsung gear. So probably working a lot more with that type of thing. You know, one of the points that I was making to somebody a few days ago was, as a designer, I can't ever really stand still. And so the question that I'm even just trying to get my head around right now is, what does the internet look like when it's all immersive and is inside Oculus? How do we design user interfaces that are haptic? And these types of questions, I think we're only beginning to tackle them. So what I would hope is that I will be tackling them in, in five years. All right. Well, just to wrap things up here, Sadango, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, I'm usually on Twitter. My Twitter is terrible and is mostly just weird pictures and fart jokes, but I'm definitely on there uh, all the time. <laughs> and of course, my website, sanango.net, has posts of all of my design work and, uh, you know, my Behance as well has some design work. But yeah, mostly just on Twitter. And then uh, my website is sanango.net. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, Sanango Akpem, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Sort of like I said before we, we started recording, you've been such an early supporter of the show. And it's really been, I mean, it's been amazing for me to see how you have grown as a designer and, and the work that you've done over these past few years. I, I really like everything that you had to say about culture and design, because I feel like that's something which is really missing from our current kind of design atmosphere when you talk about digital design, etc. It feels like culture has been left out of it. So I like that you're kind of challenging it in a way, but also addressing it through your talks and through your projects and things like that. I'm excited to see what you're going to do in five years. I mean, if it's any indication from what I've seen so far, we're definitely in for a treat. So Thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No problem at all. And, you know, Maurice, thank you as well. It's just been a huge joy to, to watch Revision Path just go from strength to strength and to see all of the hard work that you put in. People do appreciate it, even if you don't get the thousands of adoring emails every day. Uh, <laughs> uh, you should, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. So whoever's listening to this, like send Maurice an email and tell him that you really love the show because it's great. And, you know, I hope that this continues and that you find the, you know, the strength to keep going with it because we really, we do need this. So yeah, thanks for that. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Sanango Akbem and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Sanango and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. 
Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. The attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two, and it really, really helps get the show up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.